and welcome back. I'm Carmi. And I'm Cassandra. And we're too good to be true. Welcome to part two of Enron, where I talk more about a lot of boring shit. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be that boring. Like, it's not. Stuff's got to, this is like the back end, so stuff's going to like hit the fan. It's know? not up my alley. It's not murder and cults and, you know, slash yeah. romance scams, but it's it's really, it's got some interesting aspects to it, and it's very important because it uh, really affected a lot of how we deal with corporate financing and accounting now. Right. So last time we kind of, we covered how Enron started, we covered the key players involved, what they were doing, how they were kind of just making shit up, making up their own numbers, seeing their own figures. They were saying that, you know, they had all this profit that they really couldn't account for because they were basically doing pretend profits. They were saying, oh, this deal is going to make me $50 million down the road. So they are immediately writing in the $50 million without actually waiting to see if it makes see what happens. And then we got to a point where another place, uh, Dynagy, was going to be buying them out because they have got themselves so far in the hole at this point. That's their best option. So that's where we're going to pick up with the Dynagy buyout. So with that, Enron was planning to provide a comprehensive explanation of its business practices as a way to build confidence in the company. Their stock price had dropped to around $7, which if we remember from the last episode, its high was around $83. So now we're all the way down to $7. That's very low. Yeah. It was clear that the company could not continue operating independently. And after enc encountering numerous rejections, Enron's management appeared to have found a buyer when the board of Dynagy, an energy trader based in Houston, voted to acquire Enron for a significantly reduced price of about $8 billion in stock on November 7th. Chevron Texaco, which owned a quarter of Dynagy at the time, agreed to provide Enron with $2.5 billion in cash, $1 billion of which would be provided up front and the remainder upon completion of the deal. So already they're, they are getting some money. They're getting this initial $1 billion. In addition to taking on nearly $13 billion of debt, Dynagy would also be responsible for any previously undisclosed debt resulting from Enron's secretive business practices, which could be as much as $10 billion. That's like a lot to take on. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a lot to gamble with. Because yeah. you don't know how much it really is, and if it is the full 10, they're sinking already. They're at $23 billion in the hole to start. Yeah, to me that sounds like a bad deal for them. Well, but plus $8 billion to actually in the stocks. So right. it's still, that's so much money to pay. And Dynagy and Enron officially announced their agreement on November 8th, 2001. Enron was on the brink of collapse and Dynagy had the upper hand in negotiating the terms of their merger. The agreement dictated that Dynagy would be the surviving company with its CEO, Charles Watson, and management team leading the merged entity. Enron's shareholders would receive a 40% stake in the enlarged Dynagy and three seats on the board. Enron's former CEO, Kenny Boylet, was not given a management role, but he was expected to take one of Enron's board seats. Among Enron's senior executives, only Wally would become an executive vice president in the merged company's C-suite. To keep Enron afloat until the deal closed, Dynagy agreed to invest $1.5 billion in Enron. 
So like they're at this point, they are so deep in the hole that crazy. they need this money just to stay afloat, just to make it. Right. And Enron was so financially strained that it refused to pay its bills for November until the credit agencies approved the merger, allowing Enron to keep its investment grade credit rating because they were initially, like we covered last time, going to drop it down to junk They status, were going to drop it. Which means yeah. basically they can't do anything. They can't get any financing or do anything, really. Right. Without the merger, Enron's ability to trade would be severely limited if its credit lines with competitors were reduced or eliminated. After Enron and Dynagy modified the agreement to make it harder for Dynagy to pull out, Moody's and S&P agreed to lower Enron's credit rating to just above junk status, allowing Enron to pay its bills one day late with interest. So whatever they were doing, they made this little deal. They were like, we're not going to put you all the way down to junk status. We're going to put you just a little bit above it. And then that way you can still pay your bills, but you got to pay the interest that accumulates for paying it one day late. Okay. Observers noted the contrasting corporate cultures of Dynagy and Enron and praised Watson's direct manner. They were like, hey, finally a guy who's not just making shit up and doesn't know what he's talking about. Cool. For real. (laughs) Some question whether Enron's problems were solely due to accounting errors, which, as we find out, they're they're not. I mean, they weren't errors. Right. They they did that shit on purpose. Right. Enron later claimed that the billion-dollar charges disclosed in October were actually only $200 million, with the rest simply being corrections of inactive accounting errors. There were concerns that further errors and restatements could still be revealed. So they're like, oh, God. It couldn't be worse. There's going to be more. We're going to think it is. Yeah. On November 9th, Enron announced another significant correction of its earnings, reducing its stated revenue from 1997 to 2000 by $591 million, which isn't a small amount of money. No, it's not. The bulk of these charges were attributed to two special purpose partnerships, Jedi and Chuko. The correction essentially wiped out the profits for fiscal year 1997 and substantially reduced profits for other years. Despite this revelation, Dynagy stated its intention to proceed with the purchase of Enron. I don't know what they saw in this. I don't know why. Just why. I don't even know what else to say because it's like you're having to sink so much of your own money into it just to keep them afloat, what do you see in this that's making you think it's going to be profitable? No idea. Both companies were waiting for an official evaluation of the proposed sale from Moody's and S&P, presumably to assess the impact of any buyout on their credit ratings. So they're like kind of holding off for this, like I said, official evaluation. And there were also concerns about antitrust regulations that can lead to divestiture, which is a new word for me. Yeah, what's that one? You know what? I don't remember. It's like, what? <laughs> I'm actually going to look it up because it's going to bug me because I did look it up. And then that means- I don't remember. Okay, I looked it up. <laughs> divestiture is when the company sells off its assets or stuff to uh, make some of it. To, to like recoup yeah. money. 
Yeah, or or it can go as far as filing bankruptcy, so that they're not, you know, completely in the hole. The two companies aggressively marketed the deal, with some observers optimistic about the potential benefits. Despite growing credit concerns, Watson believed Enron was a stable company that could weather any potential issues. So he's, I don't... Is he delusional? Rose-colored glasses here, I guess. I don't know. However, rating agencies like Moody's and S&P downgraded Enron to near-junk status, causing many traders to withdraw from Enron. Oh, it's happening. We're going close to junk status. People are freaking out. They're like, oh, I don't want to be involved in this because I'm going to lose my money. So they start pulling out. Watson attempted to reassure investors that there was nothing wrong with Enron's business, but it was revealed that Enron employees were resentful of management after learning that Lay and others had sold large amounts of stock before the crisis. Which is what I said last time. I was like, it makes it seem like they knew some shit. I mean, they did. And you know what I mean? Like, they jumped I in to get rid of this, and then I'm piecing out. I mean, I'd be pissed, too, if I was working yeah. for a company that was going under, and these people knew they were go- that it was going under, and so they all jump ship and just leave you and hanging. And leave you hanging to just deal with it. Lay was set to receive a $60 million payout following the Dynagy acquisition, while many employees saw their retirement accounts decimated by the 90% drop in stock price over a year. The situation was particularly dire for married couples who both worked at Enron, some of whom lost up to 800000 or $900,000, effectively wiping out their savings. Wow. I mean, I couldn't... So there were, like, couples that worked there. I mean, that happens. That happens. A lot of people find their significant others at their jobs. I, I dated two guys I worked with. Okay, I could see that. Ended up getting engaged to one. Obviously, it didn't work out, but, you know, that happens. But, I mean, these people that put all their time into, you know, loyalty into this company and they work for it for years, all for nothing. They lose all their money. Watson, he's still going now. He reassured investors that he was aware of the true nature of Enron's business and that there were no more negative surprises to come. (laughs) If only he knew, right? Okay, Watson. Okay. He believed the transaction with Dynagy was an excellent deal, stating that Enron's energy trading part alone was worth the price Dynagy was paying for the entire company. However, in mid-November, Enron announced plans to sell underperforming assets worth $8 billion and reduce its scale for financial stability. On November 19th, Enron disclosed that it had debt repayment obligations of $9 billion by the end of 2002, which was vastly more than its available cash. The math ain't mathin'. Math ain't mathin'. That's that's not good. The company revealed that an unfavorable outcome regarding asset sales and debt refinancing could have a significant adverse impact on its ability to continue as a going concern. Two days later, Wall Street expressed doubts that Dynagy would proceed with the deal. Analysts were concerned that Enron had exhausted nearly all of the $5 billion it had recently borrowed in just 50 days. Wow. 50 days. $5 billion. $5 billion in 50 days. Mm-hmm. And Dynagy was reportedly unaware of this rate of cash cash use. But however, oh, really? you know, Watson had said, there's going to be no more surprises. Well, surprise, bitch. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I guess he wasn't counting on that. 
Sources close to Dynegy were skeptical that the latest revelations constituted sufficient grounds to end the proposed buyout. Later, it was discovered that Enron's traders had used much of the money from Dynegy's cash infusion to guarantee payment to their trading partners. Then the SEC filed civil fraud complaints against Anderson, the audit company, and Enron, and Dynegy were reportedly negotiated. I can't talk. Words are hard. It's okay. <laughs> Enron and Dynegy were reportedly renegotiating the terms of their agreement. So they're already like, eh, uh, <laughs> I don't know about this. Dynegy demanded that Enron agree to be bought for $4 billion instead of $8 billion. And it was difficult to determine which of Enron's operations, if any, were profitable. They probably were. I don't think It doesn't seem know. like it. They were, you know. I mean, no. Reports suggested that business was shifting en masse to Enron's competitors for risk exposure reduction, which makes sense. People are like, I'm going to go with this less risky business rather than trade with Enron, who is fucking shady. Right. I mean, that makes sense. And that makes sense because it seems like their business practices are not that great. Not really. On November 28, 2001, Enron faced its worst-case scenarios. Credit rating agencies downgraded Enron's credit rating, finally, to junk status. And Dynegy's board terminated the merger agreement based on Watson's advice. Watson finally woke the fuck up. Jeez. Took him a bit, huh? <laughs> Watson later said, and I quote, In the end, it was an impossible situation. Despite addressing various issues during a meeting in New York over the weekend, Dynegy's concerns regarding Enron's financial stability and declining business were too much. Enron had minimal cash reserves for operations and couldn't meet its massive debts. Because of this, the company's stock price plummeted to just 61 cents by the end of the Holy trading day. Shit. The repercussions of Enron's downfall extended to its creditors and other energy trading companies, resulting in significant losses. Some analysts interpreted Enron's collapse as indicative of the risks in the post-September 11th economy, prompting traders to secure profits whenever possible. And the main concern shifted to assessing the overall exposure of the markets and traders to Enron's failure. Preliminary estimations pointed to $18.7 billion. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. One advisor noted, we are uncertain about the extent of Enron's credit exposure. I'm advising my clients to prepare for the worst. Sounds good to me. I mean, what else can you do, honestly? I mean, and it seems like every time that they think they've seen the worst of it there's more there's always more it gets worse and worse. what's his name from the old commercials billy mays oh, oh yeah there's more oh yeah for sure but With, not in a good way yeah within a day speculation arose that enron would be compelled to declare bankruptcy the company's liabilities encompassing outstanding debt and guaranteed loans were approximated at around $23 billion, which is what we said earlier with the $10 billion and then the additional $13 billion. Right. Citigroup and J.P. Morgan Chase faced substantial potential losses due to Enron's bankruptcy. Also, Enron had pledged many of its significant assets to secure loans, 
raising doubts about the prospects for unsecured creditors and eventually stockholders in the bankruptcy process, which that I can kind of explain a little bit. So if you take out a loan, you can have either secured or unsecured. When you have unsecured, that means that it's tied to nothing. They have just handed you money with all intentions of you just paying it back to them, you know, right. kind of on good faith. If you have secured, that means that you have an asset tied so up like in the collateral. Yes, that you're using as collateral. And maybe like if you have a car loan, your car is your collateral. If you have a mortgage, your home is your collateral. But you can put up other things. You can you can put your home or your car up for any other type of loan. Correct. If you're a company, you can put up your assets um, in your like your inventory. You can put up your like you can put your your entire inventory as like collateral. if you're a business or whatever. Right. You can put yeah. your entire inventory as collateral. You can put the building as collateral. You can put, um, like, all of your profits as collateral. But here's the issue. If Enron has no profits, profits then there's no collateral. Then there's nothing. Also, yeah. if it's unsecured, then the banks have nothing to go after. Like, if you have your car loan and you don't pay, what do they do? They take your car back. If you have an unsecured loan where there's nothing attached to it, they cannot take anything from you because there's, there's no collateral. There's no, there is nothing for them to come after. So that's an issue. And when you do file in some kind of bankruptcy or if you say even have an insurance claim that's going to pay out, what's going to happen is that they're, they're going to take care of your, your loans like that have the liens on them first, you know, say you have a mortgage and your home burns down and you also have a home equity loan on that same home. Right. Then the majority of the money is going to go to paying down the first lien holder on your mortgage. And then whatever's left over trickles down to the home equity loan. So if you have not enough, you know, say maybe the first one gets paid off, but there's only half of the second one to over, then you're kind of screwed. You still need to come up with the other half. But the other half of the money. Right. I, I hope I explained that. It makes sense. Well enough. Me. I knew a little bit of it because Sandy was explaining loans to me the one day at work. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. Thank you, Sandy. Thanks, I, Alan. Well, I wanted to know. I was like, I don't, what's the difference? And she sat and explained it to me. And it was revealed that Enron's new corporate treasurer, Ray Bowen, had become aware of the impending bankruptcy since the day Dynagy withdrew from the merger. He spent the following two days scrambling to find a bank willing to hold Enron's remaining cash after withdrawing all funds from Citibank and ultimately had to settle for a small Houston bank. Probably went to some little rinky-dink community bank. That would be like, all right. (laughs) (laughs) By the close of business on November 30th, 2001, it was clear that Enron was on the brink of collapse. Enron Europe the subsidiary overseeing Enron's operations in continental Europe, filed for bankruptcy on that day. The rest of Enron followed suit the next night, December 1st, when the board unanimously voted to file for Chapter 11 protection. This marked the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history, surpassing the Penn Central's bankruptcy in 1970, although WorldCom's bankruptcy the following year actually surpassed Enron's record. So, you know, they were like, heh. I'm going to win. We're going to win. We're going to be the biggest losers. We're going to be the biggest. We're going to beat you out for the biggest loser. The fallout resulted in 4,000 job losses. 
On the day of Enron's bankruptcy filing, thousands of employees were instructed to gather their belongings and leave the premises within 30 minutes. Do you imagine? You thousands get... of people within 30 minutes? Yeah, you get to work and they're just like, well, so... Guess there was no work because we done no fucked up and you need to get your stuff within the next half an hour and bye. Wow. Around 62% of the 15,000 employees' retirement savings plans relied on Enron stock purchased at, like I said, $83 in early 2001, which had now become virtually worthless because it's dropped down to that 61, 61 cents. Enron terminated its association with Arthur Anderson, its auditor, on January 17, 2002, due to concerns over their accounting guidance and the deliberate destruction of records. Anderson, in response, argued that it had already severed ties with Enron prior to the company's bankruptcy. I don't know who was selling. Who knows who's selling? True. I mean, they um, both were doing some shady shit. shit. It's not like it was just Enron or just Anderson, and they were. You know, they were working together. They were right. collaborating they were, like, on the mess. Scratching each other's back, you know. Fastow and his wife, Leah, entered guilty pleas for the charges against them. Initially, Fastow faced 98 counts of various crimes, such as fraud, money laundering, insider trading, and conspiracy. However, <laughs> he admitted guilt to two charges of conspiracy as part of a plea bargain. In exchange for testifying against Lay, Skilling, and Causey, Fastow received a 10-year sentence without parole. Leah, his wife, on the other hand, faced six felony counts, but later had them dismissed in favor of a single misdemeanor tax charge. She lucked the fuck out. Yeah, for sure. She was sentenced to one year for assisting her husband in concealing income from the government. Lay and Skilling stood trial for their involvement in the Enron scandal in January 2006. The indictment against them included 53 counts spanning 65 pages, encompassing various financial crimes, such as bank fraud, making false statements to banks and auditors, securities fraud, wire fraud, money laundering, conspiracy, and insider trading. On May 25, 2006, the jury delivered its verdict in the Lay and Skilling trial. Skilling was found guilty on 19 out of 28 counts of securities fraud and wire fraud, but was acquitted on the remaining nine, including charges of insider trading. He received a sentence of 24 years, in, 24 years and four months in prison. In 2013, Skilling reached an agreement with the United States Department of Justice resulting in a reduction of 10 years from his sentence. Kenny Boy entered a plea of not guilty to the 11 criminal charges, asserting that he had been deceived. That's that's the most I annoying think... part of this. You were a major player in this. You knew what was going on from the beginning, because if you remember those two initial traders that were fucking around, and... He, you know, skimming stuff yeah. off the top and whatever. And they had already been charged. And he was like, oh, just keep making us millions. <laughs> right. He just chose to look the other way and be like, well, if they're making us money. Right. He attributed the primary reason for the company's downfall to fast out. Because, of course, these people can never take accountability. Right. They always have to pass it on to somebody else. It's somebody else's fault. I had no idea. What was it that Clinton Clinton said? 
I had no relations with that woman. woman yeah. <laughs> Lay's like, I had no relations with that business. <laughs> I don't know. None whatsoever. <laughs> well, they didn't believe him because he was found guilty of all six counts of securities and wire fraud that he had been tried for, and he faced a potential prison sentence of up to 45 years. However, before sentencing could take place, Lay passed away on July 5, 2006. At the time of his death, the SEC was pursuing over $90 million from Lay in addition to civil penalties. That's a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, how do you even come out of that? I don't think you do. <laughs> I mean, he, he probably had more than $90 million. But that's the thing that drives me crazy about this. Why do they only have to pay back $90 million? Say, and I'm just saying this, I'm not saying this is true, but say he had $250 million, why don't they just take all of it? He doesn't deserve that. He shouldn't have a damn penny. They shouldn't have a profit from doing, like, shady business. Yeah, and you yeah, can't really tell what's what. What, what he got, what? Yeah. you know, illegally, what he got. What illegally. he did. I yeah. say, take it all. Just take it all from him. Just take it all. Leave him penniless. It's what they deserve when they do shit like this. You know, take his money and distribute it amongst the employees who lost their retirement plans. You know? Fuck, that would be fair because... As you said, a lot of employees lost their job. Right. And some, and some of them. This wasn't just like stealing money, like, haha, I stole some money from a business. He stole these people's like entire futures from them. Right. The situation involving his wife, Linda, is complex. She sold approximately 500,000 shares of Enron shortly before the news of Enron's collapse became public on November 28th, 2001. And she was never charged in connection with any of the Enron-related incidents. But why? Exactly why. I mean, she knew. Obviously, she knew. He was telling her, and she was like, all right, let me sell that off for you, babe. Yeah, that that doesn't check out. Despite working in Enron for more than seven years, Lay was unaware of Michael Copper's existence even after the company went bankrupt, and Copper managed to remain anonymous throughout everything. <laughs> okay he became the first enron executive to plead guilty how did this man not know about him he like didn't even like, know he existed how, how little the, he knew he, about the company like he really didn't know what was going on because if he didn't even know who that person was or that they even existed chief accounting officer rick causey faced six felony charges for concealing enron's financial state during his time in office after initially pleading not guilty, he eventually changed his plea to guilty and received a seven-year prison sentence. I mean, that's better than the other people have gotten so far. That's true. In total, 16 individuals pleaded guilty to crimes committed at the company and five others, including four formal, former, former, former you know, close enough, Whatever. former Merrill Lynch employees were found guilty. Three of them had their convictions overturned on appeal. Eight former Enron executives, with Fastow as the main witness, testified against Lay and Skilling, their former super superiors. Kenneth Rice, the former head of Enron Corps' high-speed internet unit, also provided cooperation and testimony that contributed to, to the conviction of Skilling and Lay. In June 2007, Rice himself received a 27-month prison sentence. I mean, I would. Like... I would definitely be a witness. If if it was going to reduce my sentence, 
I mean, these aren't mob men. I mean, they're not going to come after you and be like, yeah, oh, yeah, dude, definitely. Oh, I definitely would too. Like that man right there, that one. If they say they're going to reduce your sentence, hell and yeah. You knew the goings on of these higher up people. I mean, why not? The only one acquitted that I've seen is Michael Krauts, a former Enron accountant. Arthur Anderson was convicted of obstructing justice by destroying evidence related to its audit of Enron. Remember, we heard a lot about the shredding of documents. Mm -hmm. Arthur Anderson was doing that. How nice of them to do that for them. Yeah, nice. You know, and they, they, they terminated their, their stuff with Enron, and they had no idea that all this was going on for sure. Because, you know, that's what people who shred documents. Yeah. They're like, oh, we had no idea. Don't we just look at those bins of shredded documents. Just shred those documents <laughs> because we didn't like them. That's all. They didn't look good. <laughs> they just they didn't print well. We thought that we didn't need them. Actually, it was our intern who did it. <laughs> Despite only a few employees being involved, the firm was effectively shut down as the SEC cannot accept audits from convicted felons. So Arthur Anderson just was no more because they can't accept an audit can't. from crooked, you know, idiot people who are shredding documents. They couldn't shit out of it anymore. Yeah. Arthur Anderson then surrendered its CPA license, resulting in 85,000 job losses. It just gets worse and worse. Yeah, you just go Honestly. deeper and deeper, and it just... All these it's getting worse. people losing their jobs... Because of a handful of assholes. Yeah, exactly. Although the conviction was later overturned by the Supreme Court due to jury instruction issues, the damage to the firm's reputation was severe, preventing its successful return. And we learn about this. We learn about this when we um, take our training for the banks about the different types of penalties that you can face for fucking up at the bank. You know, you can face criminal charges if you are willingly doing something fraudulent you can yeah there's like different you can yeah levels layers you can even still get criminal charges even if you didn't intentionally do it because you were negligent negligence still can get you still counts criminal yes and then there's civil sanctions that can be filed against individual you know a teller or whatever Mm -hmm. and then there's the intangible ramifications that i talk about in terms of you know your public how you look to the public yeah and if the public doesn't feel like they can trust you. If the public doesn't find you to be a safe place, right? That should trust with, the then they're not going to, and then it's going to kill your business mm-hmm. that either way. Yeah, that's, you know that's just as damaging as as actually having criminal charges filed. You know, because if you're faced with say two of the same type of business, and one has never had any problems, and the other one is constantly in the news for fraud, who are you going to go? Exactly. Yeah, nobody's going to want to do business with someone that has been seen to be fraudulent or anything like that, like anything negative. Right. You know what I mean? You can claim to clean it up all you want, but the public's perception is what it is. It's our, the damage is already done, basically, to the public. Giles Darby, David Birmingham, and Gary Mulgrew were employees of Greenwich Nat West and had collaborated with Fastow on a special purpose entity called Swap Sub. 
When Fastow came under SEC investigation, three individuals met with the British Financial Services Authority in November 2001 to discuss their interactions with him. Subsequently, the U.S. issued arrest warrants for them on charges of wire fraud leading to their extradition. During this time, Neil Kolbeck, a potential Enron witness scheduled for extradition, was found dead in a London park. The U.S. Awful. The U.S. alleged that Kolbeck and others had conspired with Fastow. Well, there was another guy. I think his name was Carl Baxter, I want to say. He was, like, really good friends with, I want to say, Skilling. And he had actually committed suicide because he was just so distraught over everything that happened with Enron. Yeah. And, you know, obviously not having his job or his retirements or anything anymore. But I didn't devote a lot of time to discussing to that as... I mean, it's it's not extremely relevant it's to what we're talking about. Relevant. And it's sad, and it, it's, you know, and it's depressing. Yeah, yeah. In November 2007, the trio entered a plea bargain, admitting guilt to one count of wire fraud, while the other six counts were dismissed. Each of them received a 37-month prison sentence, but in August 2010, Birmingham and Mulgrew retracted their confessions. I mean, it's too late. You you already confessed. Too little, too late. Honestly, another it's another thing with the public perception of you. Okay, you confess to a crime, you get sentenced to jail, prison, and then later, and then we try to take it back. Like, oh, I did it, like, but it's like you already said that. Yeah, no one's gonna believe you. Yeah. While some employees were granted significant bonuses during the final days of Enron, the company's shareholders suffered a staggering loss of seventy-four billion dollars over the four years preceding its bankruptcy, with 40 to $45 billion attributed to fraudulent activities. I was shocked there, really, because obviously pretty much everything they were doing was not legit. With Enron's debt to creditors reaching nearly $67 billion, employees and shareholders received minimal, if any, assistance beyond severance pay from the company. It's just all for me. It is. It really is. Enron resorted to holding auctions to sell off assets like art, photographs, logo signs, and pipelines in order to repay its creditors. A collective lawsuit representing approximately 20,000 Enron employees who alleged mismanagement of their 401k plans resulted in a settlement of $356 million against Enron and their 401k manager, Northern Trust, in July 2005. However, a year later, federal judge Melinda Harmon reached an agreement to reduce the settlement amount to $37.5 million, with Northern Trust neither admitting nor denying any wrongdoing. That's unfortunate, because I was thinking, oh, well, at least they got something out of it, but then they, like, substantially reduced it. Reduced it. In May 2004, over... 20,000 Enron employees won a lawsuit to receive $85 million in compensation for the $2 billion loss suffered from their pensions. I mean, but when you when you break it up, $85 million, you're like, hell yeah, $85 million. But when you split that over 20,000 people, and I sat there and did the math before I read the rest of the article, because God forbid we finish the fucking article before we start mathing. Yeah. It, it literally, the next line, I said how much it's they got, true. but I was sitting there dork like you're like i need to know <laughs> i need to type this in so each employee received around 3100 dollars from the settlement that's it that's sad 3100 just not 
it, you know? <laughs> like, you're really not getting anything out of this. And not really. Not anything worth it. It's like, why? It, it doesn't even feel like a win. It's like, okay, we won this lawsuit, but not really. Like, right. did we really? Right. You know? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a little offensive, you know? Yeah. The following year, investors received an additional settlement of $4.2 billion from several banks. Then, in September 2008, a settlement of $7.2 billion was reached in a $40 billion lawsuit filed on behalf of the shareholders. The settlement was distributed among the lead plaintiff, the University of California, or UC, as well as 1.5 million individuals and groups. UC's legal firm, Coughlin, Stoya, Geller, Rudman, and Robbins, Jesus, that's a lot of people, it's a lot of words, <laughs> received $688 million in fees, which stands as the highest fee awarded in a U.S. securities fraud case. UC expressed their satisfaction with the outcome in a press release stating, We are extremely pleased to be returning these funds to the members of the class. Achieving this outcome required a long and challenging effort, but the results for Enron investors are unprecedented. From December 2001 to April 2002, the Enron scandal and various accounting and investor protection issues were thoroughly discussed in hearings conducted by the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs, and the House Committee on Financial Services. These hearings, along with subsequent corporate scandals, prompted the enactment of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act on July 30, 2002. What that act did was introduce several significant measures, including the creation of the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board responsible for establishing audit report standards. So, I mean, you know... That makes sense. We get audited, and when yeah. we get audited, we have all that criteria we have to meet, and it's very strict, and this is why. It also imposed restrictions on public accounting firms, prohi prohibiting them from providing non-audit services while performing audits. Which, I mean, that makes sense. That makes sense. You'd think they wouldn't have been yeah. doing that to begin with. You're there to do an audit. You're, You're there audit. to do an audit. You shouldn't be sticking your nose in other bullshit while you're there right you know to do your job and leave it mandated the independence of audit committee members required executives to personally certify financial reports and specified that certain executives would forfeit bonuses in case of financial restatements the act also expanded the financial disclosure requirements related to companies associations with unconsolidated entities in response to instances of corporate misconduct and accounting violations, the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC as we've been saying, recommended regulatory changes for stock exchanges on February 13, 2002. Then in June 2002, the New York Stock Exchange proposed a new governance framework which gained approval from the SEC in November 2003. The key provisions of the final New York Stock Exchange proposal were as follows. All companies must have a majority of independent directors. Independent directors must adhere to a comprehensive definition of independence. The Compensation Committee, Nominating Committee, and Audit Committee must consist of independent directors. All members of the Audit Committee should... Put, ugh, Jesus, I don't know why I can't talk today. I don't know what my problem is. 
All members of the audit committee should possess financial literacy, and at least one member must have accounting or related financial ma management experience. Oh, my God. Expertise. Somebody it's just okay. put me out of my misery. You know, they can't even read my own oh, notes. Oh, I'm so tired. So tired. It's because my cat keeps harassing me. I can't sleep. I haven't slept in months. <laughs> slept in Somebody had a long time. <laughs> anyway, the board should hold additional sessions without the presence of management in addition to its regular meetings. I guess that makes sense. I mean... I get the whole um, having them be like separate people because right because you want your system to checks and balances. You yeah, not the same people doing all right the shit because then it's easier for them to manipulate things. But exactly. If I'm so doing, like, if I'm doing something, then you audit it, and then somebody else audits you. It, I mean, it's going to be harder to conceal stuff like that. Right. And then holding their additional sessions without the presence of management, I mean, that makes sense because then management doesn't happen to be involved in every little thing. And Yeah, it's like that one guy that they were saying had his hands in, like, every little business that they were doing dealings with. Yeah, that's, like, yeah, yeah. that's probably why they needed to put something like this into place. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm looking outside at the smoke. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. Crazy. We're, in case you guys didn't know, we're located in Pennsylvania and we're getting a lot of smoke from the Canadian wildfires right now. It's a little nuts out there. Yeah, you can't see anything. Anything at all. Like, there's mountains directly outside my window and you can barely see them. Barely, yeah. So then I did a little bit of digging and I was like, well, where are these people now? As I said, Ken Lay passed away before sentencing. He died due to a heart attack on July 5th, 2006. As a result of his death, the court nullified his guilty verdicts, leaving us uncertain about the potential length of his sentence. You know, because they didn't get that far. They didn't get that far, so we don't know. Yeah, we don't know what it would have been. And like I said, initially Jeff Skilling received a prison sentence of 24 years, but it was later reduced to 14 years following that appeal. <laughs> he was required to repay $42 million to the fund established to compensate and run employees and shareholders. Skilling served the remainder of his sentence in a halfway house and was eventually released in February 2019. So he's out. Okay. In a separate legal proceeding, he was permanently barred from holding any position as a director or officer in a public company, which we've seen that before with uh, Billy McFarland and I think Elizabeth Holmes also had that. But if they want to, they find way. They find a way. They find ways, you know. After his release from prison in 2019, Skilling made efforts to establish a company called Veld LLC, which aimed to function as a trading platform for natural gas and other energy trains. See what I'm saying? Because we've seen it before. Billy did it, even though he wasn't supposed to be doing it. They just find ways to get around it, you know? In August 2021, Veld LLC obtained official registration in the state of Texas. But on August 30th, 2022, the company's status was changed to inactive. Currently, estimates of Skilling's remaining net worth vary from $500,000 to $1 million. That's a lot lower than it was, but For sure. pretty decent. More money than I have. Yeah. Fastow faced an indictment on 78 charges related to fraud, money laundering, and conspiracy. 
He reached a plea agreement that involved a potential prison term of up to 10 years and forfeiture of assets worth over $29 million. This deal was made in exchange for his cooperation in the trials of other Enron executives. In September 2006, Fastow received a six-year prison sentence and two years of probation. However, due to his substantial cooperation in other Enron cases, a judge decided to reduce his sentence to five years of prison. As a result, he was released in 2011. In 2011? Wow, so only five years. That's, that's lame. He needed more than that. After serving his prison term, Fastow found employment as a document review clerk at a Houston-based law firm. He also became a speaker on the lecture circuit, ironically discussing topics such as ethics and accounting integrity. Are you serious? <laughs> his estimated net worth was reported to be approximately $500,000. That's such a crock of shit. <laughs> I agree. Sharon Watkins, who was our whistleblower, who wrote that initial letter to Lay, okay, outlining yeah. all of the problems, she wrote a book about her time in Enron in 2004. She also participated in the documentary I watched, The Smartest Guys in the Room. Mm-hmm. I still, I, I still think that documentary was a fever dream. It was, it was there are entire lots of any boobies in yeah. the doc. I don't. Watkins remains girls gone wild. <laughs> Maybe they like accidentally mixed it with you know. I don't know. It was. Who knows? I don't know. Watkins <laughs> remains engaged in the lecture circuit where she delivers talks on subjects including corporate ethics, governance, and shares her personal Enron experience. And she has established a consulting firm specializing in corporate governance and business ethics. Go for her. After leaving Enron, the booby guy, Lou Pie, you know, a.k.a. stripper aficionado, (laughs) (laughs) it seems like it, went on to establish and serve as the former chairman of Element Markets, a consulting firm focused on renewable energy. Subsequently, he became a partner at Midstream Capital Partners, LLC, a company that employed several former Enron personnel. And hopefully they all have their shirts on. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that. But also, like, it's kind of mind-blowing that these people were able to still get jobs working in the energy and minus it's mind-blowing at all that they were able to do anything because honestly a lot of people like when they get out of prison and when they are ex-cons they have a hell of a time and find jobs housing yeah and what and finding places to live or anything yeah so i guess i mean obviously they were established before all that and their wives probably held down the fort until they got back so they had that going for them but i'm still it goes to show you the privilege that rich that people, people really have. have. Yeah, that these oh, rich and powerful real. people could do this shit and then spend this time in prison. I mean, granted, they did go to prison; they did have to pay restitution, but they could afford it, and then they could still land on their feet on the way out. Yeah, it's nuts. It's kind of crazy, and it is disappointing. Mm-hmm. Truly, yes. I, I thought a lot of this was very disappointing. A lot of it was hard to understand, but also they made it that way on purpose. And then what I did get out of it was that they, I mean, I guess in their own personal opinions, they're hurting because they don't get to keep their billions of dollars and keep doing what they were doing. But in my opinion, they came out pretty They came out pretty well, if you ask me. I mean, it could have been way worse for yeah. them. Yeah, I mean, think about your regular, everyday Joe Schmo that goes to prison, and when he gets out, 
a lot of them end up right back in prison because they can't get anything. They can't, they can't get, get Johnny anywhere. Get yeah, and they can't get cars. They can't, you know, they're not trusted. So they end up... Everything they try to do, they're stuck. Right. And then they end up back in prison because it's all that they know, but also they get all their needs met. Right. I mean, some of them fall back into crime because they need to, to get money, to survive. And some of them purposely commit crimes to get back into prison because they at least know that they're going to have a roof over their head exactly. and three meals a day. And it just sucks. It sucks it's shitty that there. rich, powerful men can just do whatever the fuck they want, really. I mean, that's what I'm getting out of. Again, like, to me, it seems like, basically, to me, it feels like a slap on the wrist. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, here, you're so bad. Now you get to get out and go... Go back to your life. Go do what you were doing before, basically. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're going to run a business, obviously, you need to have better accounting practices and better auditing practices and can't just be making shit up. And, you know, yeah, just because you're thinking a deal is going to make you $50 million doesn't mean that you can... You can write that down yeah. as $50 million. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, I, that blew my mind. I was like, so they're like just saying, okay, if we estimate that it's going to be this much, we can write that down in the books as like, oh, here, we made this profit already. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the episodes, I already like to talk about, you know, how to avoid things, how to detect things, how to keep yourself safe. I mean, there isn't really much that I can say about this. Yeah, because basically it all boils down to don't be an asshole. I mean, that's really all it is. That's really true. Don't lie. Don't make shit up. Don't try to cover up problems and don't shred documents. Yeah, I can't say you're going to be fine and that your business is right. going to succeed, but your problem is going to land in jail. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, obviously, if it seems too good to be true, it is. It very much is. <laughs> if you would like to find us on social media, we are at Too Good To Be True Podcast on Facebook. We're on Instagram and TikTok, Too Good To Be True Pod. If you want to send us an email for any reason, it's Too Good To Be True Pod at Outlook.com. In our show notes, there's links to send us a voice note or to monetarily support us if you would like to. But another way you can monetarily support us is to just make sure you don't skip the ad because we get paid per ad play. It takes like less than a minute. Just don't skip it. It'd be great. And our next week is our fraud film. And I don't think we have decided what we want to watch. We have not. So what do we want to watch? Do we want to do another serious one or another silly one? I don't have any thoughts, honestly. I don't really know. Let's do... I don't want to... I do want to do The Wolf of Wall Street at some point, but I don't yeah. want to do it this time. I think that we should do a fun one again. Well, I know we were talking about Now You See Me or whatever. I mean, we could do that. That's yeah. like a simple like, do that. bank robbery do that. heist movie. Okay, yeah. so next week for our fraud film we're going to do now you see me so if you want to watch that if you have watched it that way you can follow along with our discussion we try to just have fun and be a little bit more lighthearted when it comes to those so those are our what we call our palate cleanser episodes oh yeah you know you gotta listen to sometimes some real downers 
we're not taking ourselves too seriously when we do those ones because we're we're trying to relay facts and give you good information in our other episodes. You yeah, know what I mean? And then this one's just for fun because we don't want to be a bummer all the, all the time. Yeah. So we will see you. Sort of. Not really see you, but we'll be next week. <laughs> we're here for you. We're here for you. And we'll be here next week talking about Now You See Me. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. When they left, then I was behind a motorcycle, and that guy, I swear to you, looked like he was wearing not Crocs, but like something similar, you know, like foam. And I was like, is that safe? No. You're riding a motorcycle. <laughs> like, I'm literally like, is that safe? I don't think so. No, it's not. As soon as the wall. Like, slip on. They just like, for sure. whatever. Yeah. I was like, that just doesn't. I feel like that should be like a violation or something. That just don't seem safe. I was like, I, like straight to jail. No, straight to jail. No Crocs on the motorcycle. <laughs> they looked like Crocs, but they weren't Crocs. I was like, what the hell? Like I'm literally doing that. So I'm like, is he really wearing just like slide on your feet, like go out the door real fast shoes on a motorcycle? It's a lawless land out here. I wish. <laughs> The, the the one day when I left work, and I swear to God, a guy came out of the Kmart at Burway riding, like, like those little go-karts oh, that yeah, you yeah. go around the track in. It was like somebody had stripped it down to just the frame, and dude was on Route 11 driving that. He came, down out, of, he came out of Kmart and turned and went the opposite direction. And if I had been able to get it fast enough, I would have pulled my phone out and took a video because that was the craziest shit I've ever seen. It was like watching fucking Mario Kart coming around the corner. <laughs> Do you remember when we saw that guy riding one of those like really low to the ground bikes? Oh my know? God, the guy that was like laying on his back is practically <laughs> laying on the ground. <laughs> we what were talking about that thing? at work the other day and Kristen was saying that like, she doesn't think they should be allowed on the road, but like, well, no, you can't see them. Yeah, but they let people drive them on the road because we were talking about it, and I was like, I was like, yeah, they're crazy. They come out of nowhere. You can't see them because they're like way low down to the ground. She's like, well, that's why they have those flags, and I'm like, yeah, but like, but you, you can't still see can't them. see them. Like, I don't care if they have a flag sticking up out of the back of there. I mean, he was thing. on the sidewalk there, not the road, right? No, was he, he was on the road. road. <laughs> yes. I just remember seeing some guy sliding past me because we were going this way. Yeah, literally, we were going this way and he came this way. He was on the road. I was like, oh my God, that just doesn't seem safe. Like, I, I would just, I, I would run a bitch over. Yeah, I mean, by accident, not on purpose. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't seem safe at all. I thought, <laughs> I just thought he was on the sidewalk because there was the guy biking and I thought they were just together and like he was just doing his weird fucking. No, there, I do remember that. There was a guy on a regular bike too, like, but that guy thing. was. On the ground, like, and I think she said something about how it's supposed to give you more, like, it's supposed to do something. But how how is it comfortable? But because you have to lay on your back, literally laying, like, down. You're laying yeah. down, like laying back like this and looking like that, and like, how's that not bothering your neck to just be? And then like, you're so low to the ground. There's no way you have a good line of sight for anything. Anything, yeah.
I I can't imagine. That kind of blows my mind. I heard that he was on the sidewalk. No, like, he was on the road because I was saying to her, like, how I can't believe they allow them to drive on the road. And she was saying the same thing. She's like, I don't think that should be allowed. She's like, that's not safe. And you can't see them, like, until you're up on them. Like, you cannot see them. Believe it or not, straight to jail. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everything today, just straight, straight to, to jail. jail.